0: Get ready for a journey into the heart of Bridgeport politics with In Absentia, a new podcast from Connecticut Public's investigative team, The Accountability Project. Learn about the city's past and present political dysfunction and the systems that enable it. Tune in wherever you get your podcasts.
1: Funding provided by Joe Zimmel and Valerie Friedman.
2: But Stub, he eats the whale by its own light, does he? And that's adding insult to injury, is it? Look at your knife handle there, my civilized and enlightened gourmand dining off that roast beef. What is that handle made of?
3: Kayon, could you just turn it down a little?
2: Turn what down?
3: Your voice. It's loud and it grates
0: on my ears.
2: Okay, how about this? Now when I say I'm in the habit of going to sea whenever I begin to grow hazy about the eyes and begin to be over-conscious of my lungs, I do not mean to have it inferred that I go to sea as a passenger. No!
3: It's like nails
4: against a blackboard.
2: By reason of these things, then... The wailing voyage was welcome. The great floodgates of the Whisper World swung open, and in the wild conceits that swayed me to my purpose... Ah, it's
3: like someone is slowly strangling a Canada goose.
2: Maybe you have an issue with women's voices.
3: Okay, not your being all shouty.
2: Yes, I'm being shouty, because I'm a woman with something important to say, and the male establishment is trying to silence me.
3: What is it you need to say?
2: You know, I got so upset that I forgot. But the shouting did feel pretty good. I'm going to do it more often. Today on The Nose are critics of Hillary's voice. Unfair? Also the obnoxious yard goat jingle and the phenomenon of vicarious embarrassment. And now, shall I compare his voice to a summer's day when cicadas are vomiting up willow sap? Colin McEnroe.
4: Yes, yes, yes. We are going to talk about Hillary's voice today uh, with our panelists who are so brave. Uh, they came uh, great distances in some cases. Uh, uh, one of them from, I think, Col- Collinsville? Yeah. Collinsville? One of them from Coventry. Yeah. I mean, it's just long distances in the snow, but they take their job on the nose very, very seriously. So uh, let me introduce them to you. Uh, Rebecca Castellani, uh, her voice is a low throaty chuckle uh, and uh, she is a, a master of all things uh, in literature. Poet Kate Russian is here. Her voice is like a cello played by Yo-Yo Ma on a cloudy day. and. <laughs> Thank you. And James Hanley from Trinity Cine Studio, his voice is like a zephyr, a sirocco blowing across the Libyan deserts. Uh, However, uh, not everybody's voice is so euphonious, or so we hear. We'll talk about that in just a second. Let me tell you what else is coming up on the show. Well, connected to that, sex had a really bad week this week, uh, especially uh, for young women like Rebecca Castellani, whose uterus is a golden chalice of baby-making possibility. So uh, it turns out that she can never have sex. Uh, Or according to the CDC. There's like a lot of rules basically and also then you have to worry about uh, Zika sex. If someone offers you Zika sex, say no. Say no to Zika sex. Anyway, we'll be telling you about the CDC's complicated rules which have angered many of perhaps all of our panelists. Uh, A little bit later, we'll try to talk about the um, phenomenon of vicarious embarrassment, particularly in connection with the Jeb Bush campaign. And then lastly, uh, the new jingle for the Hartford Yard goats. Uh, Is it a serious attempt to be a nice jingle or are they just now intentionally trying to annoy us to get more attention. All of that is ahead, but we will begin with uh, the criticisms directed at the voice of Hillary Clinton. She's uh, on the campaign trail uh, from the New York Times. She's been speaking in public for decades. In recent days, political observers have called her her voice loud, flat, harassing to the ear. They have said that she has decidedly grating pitch and punishing tone and called her shrill I think a lot of it with Hillary Clinton has to do with style and delivery, oddly enough, said Bob Woodward, the veteran Washington Post editor, uh, as time passed him by. Uh, She shouts, he said, adding that there was something unrelaxed about the way she is communicating. Let's hear the way she communicates. This is actually last night uh, at a pivotal and somewhat heated point in the debate with Bernie Sanders.
0: But you will not find that I ever changed a view or a vote because of any donation that I ever received. And I have stood up and I have represented my constituents to the best of my ability, and I'm very proud of that. So I think it's time to end the very artful smear that you and your campaign have been carrying out in
1: recent weeks. Issues that divide us okay, let's and do, let's, let's, let's talk we about both agree issues. with campaign finance reform.
4: I worked for fine gold.
0: I want to reverse
4: Citizens let's, United. Let's, let's, talk, about and so let's, let's talk, talk about issues. Let's talk about issues. Let's talk about issues. Let's talk about issues. I, I just want to say the artful smear is my favorite character from Oliver Twist. But uh, <laughs> that's a whole other topic. So so so, Rebecca, we might be hearing that voice thing right there. Right. I think we we're hearing that voice thing.
1: Yes. But uh, but I guess
4: the question is, we're hearing that voice thing. Is that a fair way to talk about her? Is she being held to a standard to which male candidates are not held? Right. That's the basic question before uh, us.
1: My immediate answer is absolutely. Um, I think if you go back and were to crunch the numbers and you have some sort of decibel monitor, Bernie Sanders screams a heck of a lot more than Hillary ever screams. I think screaming is, a, is an inappropriate word to begin with. I don't think anyone here is screaming. I think raising your voice is more appropriate. And my question really remains, I don't understand when assertive suddenly equals angry. Like that, to me, I've always had really an issue with when women are called angry for simply just speaking up. And men would never be called, no one has ever called Bernie Sanders angry. They endearingly call him grumpy. They call him cantankerous sometimes. But no one says, well, well Bernie Sanders, he's an angry man. Whereas Hillary is suddenly, well, she's, She's angry and shouty and I just – the rhetoric alone that these – that Woodward was using is endlessly offensive.
4: I'm not sure the claim that nobody has ever called Bernie Sanders angry could stand up to scrutiny and and Kate – Aren't personal styles to I'm playing devil's advocate here a little bit. I mean, I, I do realize that there's uh, some sexism, sexism involved here, but for the sake of conversation, aren't personal styles part of any campaign? I mean, Bernie Sanders is referred to as an angry old man, or a grumpy old man, or a crabby old man, and there's a lot of "get off my lawn, kids," uh, and there's a lot of. I mean, you watch uh, Twitter during a debate like last night's, and a certain point, I think on the, during when the Iowa returns were coming in, I saw tweets saying Bernie looks like it's past his bedtime. Uh, you know, there's a certain amount of ageism uh, poking at him. I mean, personal style does come up, right?
0: Yeah, personal style does come up. It, it, it figures into uh, how a person is received. But I've got to say, in regards to Bernie Sanders being called grumpy and cantankerous, I think that's kind of ageist myself. And when I listen to uh, Hillary Rodham Clinton speaking, I think what I'm hearing is someone who has been coached to lower her voice, to sound more authoritative, uh, to, to precisely to avoid being called shrill. So I think it would actually be interesting to compare uh, how Hillary Clinton speaks now versus how she spoke earlier in her career.
4: Although as our voices – as we age, our voices do drop lower and when we've been out on the campaign trail – Uh, where one just talks all day long, often in a way to attract crowds or to penetrate crowds. I mean, we get a a toughening of our vocal folds and if we we get granulomas, we get all kinds of horrible things. So who knows? I mean, it could be... I I like the idea that it's coaching, but I'm not sure that it is. So what about that, James? I mean, a little bit later, we're going to be talking about people kind of making fun of the cringeworthy qualities of Jeb Bush's campaign, you know, in ways that have nothing to do with the substance of his campaign. So how is... Uh, harping on Hillary Clinton's voice, different from that.
3: Well, I mean, for me, I I I just always have this feeling that maybe insecure white maildom is actually waning a little. But then we come across this uh, shrill campaign against. I use that word advisedly because shrill is a code word that's been used and has now been brought back into the discourse um, by Woodward and others. And I think that what is going on is that Hillary Clinton is suddenly beginning to look real in terms of her ability to actually articulate issues, and she's becoming a threat to a lot of people who don't. Who, who are terrified of the thought that a woman could be president and terrified of the thought that Hillary Clinton could become a president. And so I think that it becomes then a time to trot out the old stereotypes. But I think it also is something that I'm glad to see that that, that exchange that you played, actually, I thought was really good because I think raising your voices and arguing about stuff and actually even shouting somebody down at some point when you're passionate about something – That was one of the best debates I I, I, I saw. I didn't see the whole thing, but the exchanges I saw made me feel that this was about real issues and there might have been some things that one person felt hard done by by the other, but you had real issues being discussed. And you compare the language with which this has been described, including the attitudes of white males towards uh, Hillary Clinton, and you compare that with the descriptions of what happened with these massive Republican yelling matches with, you know, 19 candidates on stage and nothing really being yeah. said, just a, a whole a, a spewing of sort of loud denunciations. I think that we are actually experiencing some substance coming out. And there's a lot of people actually in the press, I think, who don't really like that because it doesn't fit into their stereotypes. And Hillary Clinton is a target now, And that's why these old stereotypes are brought out. And we talk about, oh, you know, she's loud, she's shrill. And it's designed to take away the possibility that she might actually be experienced. She might be able to make decisions. She might be a person that people who are serious about voting for somebody who might do the right thing as president. This is a threat to a lot of people who are used to having public relations companies manage their appearance.
1: I think the thing that bothered me most about what Woodward said was not so much the shrill comment. because I just think that's, as you said, it's a code word. It's etymologically completely inaccurate to describing the sound and quality of Hillary Clinton's well, voice, which right. is actually much lower than anything the word shrill connotes. What bothered me was the word unrelaxed. Yeah. Of course she's not relaxed. She's running for president of the United States as a woman, you know, surrounded by a male's arena – Talking about issues that nobody is relaxed about. No one can come quietly to talk about issues that are going on in our world right now. So, for him to criticize her for being unrelaxed is like the equivalent in my mind of a man saying, Why don't you smile enough? You look so ugly when you frown. Like, it just right. is so offensive that she's being dubbed all these things for having an opinion and expressing it passionately. I don't know when passion suddenly became criticized for her not being breezy enough.
3: What is a threat to power?
1: Yeah. She, you know, is not acting like a cover girl model and tossing her hair, so therefore she's inappropriate. I don't know. It, that just really was what, more than anything else, bothered me with that.
4: Although, Kate, when, whenever you're the first, you know, you're trying to be the first to something, there are special burdens put on you, whether that's fair or unfair. Branch Rickey didn't pick any African-American baseball player. He picked Jackie Robinson because he knew, he thought he knew certain things about Jackie Robinson, how Jackie Robinson would handle some of those challenges. And to a certain degree, you could say the same thing about Barack Obama, that he could run as an African-American candidate in a way that a lot of people couldn't, and he could keep his arms at his sides. And some of the things we criticize season for later, so being a little bit too cool, bordering on chilly, all that kind of stuff. Well, that was almost a necessity first time around, right? You cannot lose it, uh, you know, if, if you're making that particular kind of run. And in a way, you sort of wonder, I mean, maybe this is just sort of what goes along with trying to be the first, is they're going to throw stuff at you and see how you handle it.
0: Well, Hillary Clinton has to walk a, a thin line. You know, she is... And has been a feminist symbol, but she dare not appear too feminist uh, for fear of uh, generating a backlash from uh, men and others against her. Um, you know, I think about uh, the recent debate around women in combat positions in the uh in the military and now you have generals raising the specter of women being um, required to register for the selective service and so i just see this tension and this push and pull where someone in hillary clinton's position has to be a superwoman but not too strong
3: but i think there's a there's there's a problem there in the sense that I think that the territory that you have as a spokesperson and somebody who is who is attempting to gain political power and position – that you actually have to assert that power, you have to go after it, and I I understand that she's surrounded by Hillary's surrounded by people who are telling her, you know, to tone it down, you know, watch out, you're getting bad coverage and stuff like that. But then on the other hand, I think that she's at a place now where she clearly feels the confidence which comes with the ability to seek a powerful position, and I think that's an important thing. That that she doesn't devalue herself by actually being pushed back by by this uh, what what it is to me is, is like you know you read uh, I, I I think I mentioned some time ago d- talking about uh, the, the writing about Ruth Bader Ginsburg who is a very eloquent spokesperson who never minces her words and goes straight for the jugular when she's writing a Supreme Court opinion uh, that she feels is sexist or is wrong in some way. And I think that it's something that is going to make a lot of people uncomfortable. But I don't think that you solve that problem by backing off. Personally, I, th- I think that I'm glad to see the battle joined because I think this insecurity of white males is what gets us into trouble all the time. It gets us into wars. It gets us into uh, 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 the Citizens United decision. It gets us into the most horrible territory.
4: You know, I, one last question about this, and I'll, I'll throw it at you, Rebecca. Is there any way in which there's a, this has a little bit to do with us guarding, quote-unquote, our own territory in the sense that, uh, you know, if this had been a series of jokes about Carly Fiorina making uh, coats out of Dalmatian puppies um, – which to me is not a far-fetched analogy. Still, that would—I'm not sure we'd be having this conversation right now. That we—you know—you think of all the things that were thrown at Sarah Palin, fairly or unfairly. Um, I'm not sure we were—we ha- were having we would be having the same conversation. Are we being protective of Hillary Clinton because she's on our side of the aisle?
1: I don't think so, personally. I, I think that the rhetoric in general needs to change, and I do feel this way as much as I find Sarah Palin distasteful. I do think it's really interesting that when. She, you know, did that endorsement of Donald Trump. All people could talk about was her sweater or, sure, or right. you know, it, it just seems to me like the way we treat female candidates or the whole, you know, period scandal with Carly Fiorina. I mean, we would never ask white men these sorts right. of questions or make these comments on their appearance. One of the most interesting points I read this morning was someone that said, you know, if Hillary ever appealed, appeared as unkempt as Bernie, as unbrushed, as, un, you know, disheveled, she would be criticized, you know, be on the worst dress list, which, let us not forget, yeah. are still only reserved for female celebrities. So I think that appearance is so much more important for female candidates and so much more judged. It's a, it's a whole – it's a bigger issue about how we deal with female candidates versus how we deal with male candidates. I
3: think that's been true of Carly Fiorina as yes. well. Yes
4: the commentary about her as
3: being exactly that. Or, well,
4: certainly from Donald Trump, anyway. We, we should move on to our next topic, just so that we uh, make sure that we get it all in. And also, I'm going to go back to Rebecca to get started start on this one, because she has gone to school. As a matter of fact, if it weren't so snowy, she probably would have driven down to Atlanta to confront the CDC in their lair.
1: I was halfway there, and I turned around right. to make the show. So the
4: CDC announced a r- new report uh, this week. Uh, my summary of it is, if you make sexy time uh, without birth control, you can't drink, uh, or you have to use birth control if you drink and make sexy time, or you can't make sexy time if you drink and don't intend to use birth control. Um, is that about right?
1: About something about right, She's right got up. printouts. Yeah, She's I got, got the all whole kinds thing. of stuff. So my, what really? So the article, the actual text of the press release offended me less than the accompanying infographic. that was put out by the CDC. Was produced by the CDC, which really everyone should do themselves a favor and look it up. And at the head of it, it says, "Drinking too much can have many risks for women." So that, to me, doesn't, as a title, have anything to do with the actual awareness, which is, you know, preventing fetal alcohol syndrome, which we can all agree is something that would, you know, needs to be done. So then they have two columns for any pregnant woman and baby. Drinking too much can result in, and there's, you know, the obvious things, miscarriage, stillbirth, fetal alcohol syndrome, SIDS. And then there's a second column, drinking too much can have risks for any woman, and that column reads injuries, violence, heart disease, cancer, STDs, fertility problems, unintended pregnancy – all of which can affect men, and so then I went a step further and I looked up online. And according to the alcohol, let's see, what we get National Institute of Alcohol Abuse, sixty-two thousand men versus twenty-six thousand women die from alcohol-related causes. So if the CDC is really going to get up in arms about drinking, perhaps they should address that issue, if not on its own, but in tandem with the issues related to women and drinking.
4: So, Kate, I don't know. Is there anything else to say about this? I mean, it does seem – I mean, some of this is is correct, right? I mean, it, it, it does make sense to have, at least in the back of your mind or maybe even the forefront of your mind, what could happen with the combination of these things, of being of childbearing age, not using birth control and drinking. But are they – I don't know. Are they just heaping this burden on, on women in a disproportionately weird and heavy way?
0: Yeah, yeah, I think it is a big problem that the information put out by the CDC through the magazine Vital Signs seem to only be geared to women and not to men. I did not know that fetal alcohol syndrome was such a huge problem in the United States, and I didn't, I wasn't really tuned in to all the emotional and physical and intellectual problems that it uh, can cause. And I think that the CDC really did a disservice. By the way, it presented the information because it comes off sound. The CDC comes off sounding like uh, paternalism and a nanny mask. And I think yeah. the response of most people, boomers, hipsters, college students and teenagers is the same, which is you're not the boss of me. And this very, very important uh, health issue uh, gets obscured. The big takeaway for me from the CDC report is that 50% of the pregnancies in the United States are unplanned. Yes. And so what that says to me, what that underscores for me, is that uh, common self-health education mm-hmm. is important for everyone, men, women, teenagers, and children. And I think it underscores uh, Women's Movement 101, and that is affordable, accessible birth control and reproductive Birth control for all, men and women, and reproductive rights for women.
1: And don't defund Planned Parenthood. And do not defund right. Planned I, I Parenthood. I think that
3: focuses on exactly where where the problem is. That that sense that I mean, what is the thing that's been attacked? And money has been taken away from exactly that in recent years. You've been taking away from that education. You've been taking away from those health services. And I, I sort of think, you know, I, I don't know the structure of the CDC, but can you imagine that they would have a parallel, uh, the, that same committee, if you took them out of the CDC and they had a, uh, a, a probably largely male-dominated committee talking about rape, how to, how to prevent rape, yeah. it'd be all about short skirts and necklines, right? Don't walk down the street, you know, being provocative. It's an attitude that... That piece, that graphic, that infographic they put out is a profoundly insulting piece that is intended to uh, convey a sense of lack of power and power. And so women are being told, really, it's your fault. It's yeah. your problem. You've caused this. And it's, it, it comes out to, to, to have it come out of an organization which really needs to be seen as not an advocate for that kind of thing. It's just astounding to me.
1: It really reminds me of when I was in college. They made us do a pre-college seminar class on rape. And they said to all the women in the room, you are all in the red zone. That's what they labeled it because it's most likely in your first semester of college that you're going to get raped more so than any other semester of college. And the whole conversation was about don't drink too much. Don't put yourself in a situation where someone could rape you. Not directed at the men, don't rape. Period. Yeah, full right. stop. Yeah. So yeah, and and you know, getting quote unquote getting girls
0: drunk, yeah, uh, is bad. It's a problem for everyone, and men and boys need need this information directed toward them as well. And they men and boys need to have these conversations that, as well. And
3: that's exactly the role that the CDC, as a government body which is concerned with supposedly the health of all citizens, yeah. that they should be on that intellectual level that they see that as a combined
4: responsibility
3: to parse that in a way that treats citizens equally. It
4: does seem as though – I mean I, I don't know. I'm having sort of uh, associations which, which may actually be kind of irrelevant. But I do, I, I, I do feel as though I, I detect – in, in in this the way this thing was worded and the way that's sort of kicking certain tripwires uh, for you guys on the panel, this kind of notion that um, I mean I, th- I think society has always been afraid of the sexuality of young women. Um, I covered the, a little bit the trial of Karen Apero who was uh, accused of kind of orchestrating the murder of her mother. She had not committed the murder herself, but there was there was the notion that she'd manipulated her boyfriend into this, uh, and that she'd manipulated her boyfriend into this using sex basically. And uh, even the stuff that I was writing, I didn't write that much about the trial. I would get letters this is back when people sent letters from from women from older women who who really regarded what Karen Aparo had done as frightening and and out of control and it, like this force of nature that was unleashed, you know, and then you can't contain it. It's a little bit there in Romeo and Juliet, I think, which is going to be staged at the Hartford Stage Company too. This is what happens when young people fall in love and start having sex. There's violence. There's death. There's you know, and, and it's a little bit there in this thing. It's kind of like, I mean, obviously, some of what they're saying is common sense. Uh, and You could probably express it a little bit differently, but there was some kind of Censorious, control-oriented language there that seems to have been ill-thought-out.
3: The it? scarlet letter lives. <sighs> that seems to me the sneaky part of it really because there is that common sense element and it's made to look like it's common sense but it's really not. It's actually containing a judgmental attitude which permeates the, whole of the all of the writing and all of the warnings – And actually, therefore, totally devalues
4: it, in my view. It's
1: shaming, I think. It's it's wagging your finger. Don't do this, young women, or else. All right. Well,
4: don't do this, young women, uh, unless you take the proper precautions. We have to take the precaution of taking a break. We're going to switch topics when we get back after this.
0: That my dear old mama knew what she was talking about. So if you want another round, just order one. Cause I don't think a girl's gotta drink to have fun No, I don't think a girl's gotta drink to have fun
4: All right. We're back. We're back with The Nose. The Nose is James Hanley from Trinity Cine Studio. Go out in the snow and see Hateful Hate there tonight. He's probably going to endorse that anyway. Uh, poet Kate Russian and scholar Rebecca Castellani. Uh, we're going to move on. Uh, we're going to switch parties uh, to um, uh, one thing that we read this week was an article uh, about the – Uh, something called vicarious embarrassment or secondhand embarrassment. It was applied to the misadventures uh, of Jeb Bush on the campaign trail. Uh, On Monday, the former Florida governor took to the stage at a pre-caucus briefing in Des Moines. After being introduced as George uh, Jeb Bush, Uh, later that same afternoon, two apparent seat fillers stood up and loudly demanded to know why they hadn't yet been paid. Uh, And then there was Wednesday and the two saddest words ever uttered by a prospective presidential candidate, writes a New York magazine, please clap. He actually said, please clap to the crowd, although there's a little bit of context to that. But people started using, apparently without necessarily planning uh, this uh, on Twitter, uh, um, a trope began to assert itself. I get secondhand embarrassment from the facial expressions of Jeb Bush. Jeb Bush gives me secondhand embarrassment Uh, Oh, the secondhand secondhand awkward uh, on that please clap makes me want to hide under the desk. These are all independent and I think non-coordinated tweets. There is something about Jeb Bush, I think maybe because he seems a little bit sort of kind of likable and a little bit of the Charlie Brown of this campaign with uh, the other candidates being Lucy's who abuse him, that like I, I get I have this too, like during the debates when I know that Donald Trump is going to bully him. I have this James, this little cringing thing, like I don't want to see that. Um, which might be good news for Jeb Bush. They said in this article that that happens more if you like somebody.
3: Well, yes, there's a curious. I think that's where awkward comes from, really, is that feeling of, you know, you actually have some sort of sympathy, but you see this horrible train wreck happening. Or uh, I think one of the underlying things with Jeb Bush that, that always radiates to me whenever he appears is he doesn't seem to really want it. Um, that he doesn't seem to have a really strong commitment. It's almost as if somebody sort of said, go do it. And um, you you sort of think, well, maybe he's a nice guy, but uh, then he starts to be the victim of a uh, of attacks based on him not really wanting it. And so he's not assertive. So it all sort of feeds on itself in a massive feedback loop. And so really it's something that, I think that sense of embarrassment you have about somebody is like it's like um, somebody who you think uh, I, I'm trying to think of specific examples. But say an actor or, or, or on uh, the Academy Awards, for example, who is uh, actually really good, plays a really good part, but then comes up on stage and then you say, oh, God, you know, why did they say that? And it's something that you you have this sense of, of somebody you do have a respect for. And in a way, I have a kind of grudging respect for Jim Boshin that he doesn't want to do this
4: and he's not really up to it somehow. I do think, first of all, uh, Kate, there's a wonderful word. You're a word person, a poet. Uh, The Germans have a word for it. "Fremscham." I don't know if I'm saying that exactly right. I ran it by Rand earlier today, which translates uh, into external shame, that notion. And, you know, I mean, to James's point, I think another part of this is you experience this external shame, this vicarious embarrassment more acutely, when you feel the person you're watching is capable of being hurt by the situation that he's in. In other words, there are other people who can blunder, who can make mistakes, who can walk blindly into embarrassing situations, and you sort of feel as though they don't care anyway, and they may even be so thick as to not even get how embarrassing this is. There's some kind of level of consciousness that somebody like Jeb Bush appears to have that he's in this cringe-inducing experience that makes you cringe for him.
0: Yeah, you know, I, I keep asking myself, why does Jeb Bush keep doubling down? Why does he keep going forward with this? You know, I saw another clip online today where he uh, met um, a possible swing voter, and when the woman said uh, she might he might sway her to vote for him, he actually stopped, looked at his, fr- his uh, aide, looked at the woman, and, went over and gave her a hug what is he doing and why would he bring his mother out at this late date after she's already said we don't need any more Bushes in the White House
4: but there's something in our cult- culture Rebecca about this too I mean I want to just maybe expand it beyond Bush and I mean we really do have a culture that kind of relishes this stuff and, and there's a lot of kinds of comedy yeah. now that really do which I often have like I, when Ricky Gervais was just first doing The Office Although I loved him and relished what he could do, so much of it did rely on this this level of discomfort that had me just writhing in my seat. And I feel that way sometimes watching Kirby Enthusiasm, too. But it's an extraordinarily popular style of comedy.
1: Yeah, the mockumentaries definitely play off that uh – uh, that cringe laugh, which we enjoy so much, but I think that the Office, the British Office, is a great example because it was about three hundred percent cringier than the American Office because Ricky Gervais was just so offensive at every turn he took, and it worked for a British audience because I have found watching British sitcoms, they're much more willing to really go there with the cringe than we are. We're not <laughs> quite as comfortable with the cringe yet, which is why people like Jeb Bush doing this just—I mean, this was a pretty mild please clap versus some of the heinous things Ricky Gervais did on that show. And we still have had this outpouring of feeling awkward. So I think as a culture, we're actually not as equipped to deal with this vicarious awkwardness as others are.
4: Although, James, it's kind of counterintuitive. I mean, we think anyway of British culture as being more repressed, less relaxed. But maybe when you have a lot of rules, you know what the rules are. So you know what happens if rules get – I mean, you you can play out the chess game six or seven moves out, whereas – Maybe when we see a rule being broken or, or a very uncomfortable situation, we don't know what happens next. Yeah,
3: I think you hit the nail on the head there. I think it's the very repression of British society that that, that there's this underlying pressure all the time. Um, but I think satire in England, I mean, you just have to look back at early uh, iterations of Monty Python, for yes, example. Yes, that's say Monty um, Python. And, and you look uh, – uh, there was a satirical magazine called Private Eye which uh, even now is entertaining to read the back issues to see how absolutely ruthless these writers and satirists (laughs) are in naming names and going after the untouchable, you know, like Prince Philip and the Queen and and various princes and princesses and their bad behavior and also politicians and linking their craven behavior to the very nature of the repressed British society – and I think that's something unfortunately we don't have here. And I think there is a s there is a level of satire that emerges occasionally, but one of the things that really is needed is that sort of sense that of, of A kind of ruthlessness of satire that you can do it almost as a professional thing. That you, you you know, you're not being cruel to Jeb Bush by satirizing him, but you're actually telling truth. And that's the, you know, we need a fool, a really accomplished intellectual fool. Shakespearean fool. That would be great. I
4: mean, to have a fool, yeah, walk out on stage. Moderator, be a fool. Well, right. maybe just the national uh, endowment for the humanities could appoint. A, we have a, poet. <laughs> a fool. We have a poet laureate. Why can't we have a fool? A fool would be so great. I mean, that would be fantastic. I mean, that's you know, I mean, in Lear, you know, the fool is the only one who can really speak the truth, uh, and so maybe that's what we need. Although, Kate, I also wonder whether this has something to do with. I mean, we're so comfortable with physical pain, right? We can watch slapstick, we can watch violence, we can watch. I mean, it, not all of us have the exact same reactions, but I, I feel as though I always come back to uh, Bill Curry and I were watching, we we're in the movie theater watching The Departed. Uh, and of course, people's brains are being splattered all over walls and, you know, being shot in elevators and bleeding and stuff like that. And we're not flinching at all. And there's a, a moment where Matt Damon says to Vera Farmiga, uh, you know, if there's something wrong with this your relationship, you're going to have to say it because I'm Irish and I can live with anything. <laughs> we both jumped out of our seats, you know, because we're both Irish and we know exactly what Matt Damon was talking about. But it, it, we were much less prepared for emotional discomfort uh, than we were for, for physical pain and death and stuff like that. And I don't know whether that's a uniquely American thing, but it seems like we've outsourced the physical stuff and the, the other stuff where we have a lot more trouble with.
0: Well, you know, I was always an overly sensitive child. I don't know, I have, have an extra gene or I'm missing a gene, but I've been feeling other people's emotional pain all my life, so I, I can't take it anymore.
4: <laughs> you just want to. You just want to. Yeah, no, I said in the notes, I mean, for me, I, I'm completely serious about this, too. In, in um, uh, Rosemary's Baby, to me, the real source of anxiety is the social awkwardness that sooner or later Mia Farrow is going to have to bring this up, <laughs> you know, and I can't stand it. I mean, I can't stand it the fourth time I watch the movie. I can't stand the fact that she's going to have to say, you know, you're all demons, right? I mean, this Espe- is terrible.
3: especially with Ruth Gordon present.
4: I'd much rather that people's heads get cut off or something. I don't know. Is there anything, anybody have a, a last thought about this? Or I
1: just think we see that more. We see in our media and our video games and in our, in our t- television shows and our movies so much more gratuitous violence than gratuitous awkwardness. And the awkwardness stands out. And that's why it's still, you know, if, if George Bush or George Diego, so Jeb Bush were to slap someone across the face, that would almost be <laughs> less shocking than him saying, please
3: clap. <laughs> like, well, may, maybe what we've done is so commercialized violence and that sort of confrontational nature that of everything that is purveyed that there hasn't been room for the actual for the fool for the critic for yeah. the for the really intellectually able person to take apart Stupid arguments mm. and, and statements and take apart things like the CDC's pronouncements about drinking and women. I mean, it, we need that, uh, and, and we just don't have it.
4: Um, uh, uh, it's a great idea for a national gesture. I do want to say there's at least one person who listens to the show who is part of the Jeb Bush uh, inner circle. So, Greg, you might want to suggest this. So it's like you know, Just have Jeb like, slap somebody the next time they talk back to him. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> it would be great. I actually think that would be great. I don't, uh, don't know. That. I just want him to get context. Yeah. Um, all right, so uh, we have uh, just a little time left here in this segment. Uh, brace yourselves! I mean, brace yourselves if you're listening. This is not going to be pretty. It's not going to be easy. Uh, the Hartford Yard Goats uh, yesterday, I think, was it yesterday. Yesterday unveiled uh, their brand new jingle. Keep in mind, you, you know, you hire up a company, you you pay them, you pay them money to write a song that will make people like you better. Here's that song.
3: Eat it up, eat it up.
4: That is so close to one of Kate Russian's poems too. I feel like. You know, it what, could be... what is that
0: word again? From charm
4: <laughs> Are you writhing in discomfort? I am so writhing. Did they really
0: say eat it up?
4: Well, yes, they said it a, like a lot of times. They said it more than once, if that's what you're asking. And
0: with different My mouth emphasis. is still open. <laughs> eat it up.
3: They had to do this, right? I mean, they doubled down on the goats. They had to do it. They had to go there. It's, it's like you know, the, the, you remember the the story of the sort of. You know how they came up with the yard goats and the meetings and all the rest of it? This is the
0: same team. They had to do it. Doubling down on the goats. I can't get
4: that that image out of my brain. Your point's a good one, which is that goats don't do a lot of other things. Well,
1: I have to interject here. I asked my grandmother, who bred prize-winning goats for many, many years, and she said goats, in fact, are very picky. And she got the goats to deal with her garden and all they ate were the roses and grass only if it was cut. So it doesn't even (laughs) hold up, yard goats. Sorry, (laughs) eat it up doesn't work. It's a stereotype. It's a goat stereotype. Um, mean they really don't eat tin cans? No, they do not. <laughs> well, in
4: addition to the fact that, as Wolfie's pointing out, it's all very confusing because yard goats is some kind of railroad term anyway, so it's not even – although the mascots are goats and it's um, – but, you know, one thing that I was thinking, and we may actually pursue this a little bit more on, on Monday when we'll be talking about Super Bowl ads with some ad gurus like Chris Knopf from Instant Hoke and Steve uh, Wolfberg from uh, Cronin & Company, but about jingles, you know – like jingles don't have to be awful, but they kind of mostly are, right? I mean, there are a few jingles that are kind of euphonious and nice, and a few sitcom theme songs that you don't mind hearing and singing. But so, so much more often, they do kind of grate against the ears. Not because you've heard them twenty times. I mean, they grate against your ears the first time you hear them. So is that just that's, that's how you the get people? That's like, what that's <laughs>
3: that's exactly what they want. That's exactly what they're trying to do is to get you. It's paying attention above the noise. And so that's why uh, 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 the jingle – you might have a cute jingle that people remember, but it's just as good to have a, a, a horrible, aggressive jingle that just really gets on your nerves. Because every time you hear it, you're going to say something to somebody. You're going to repeat it. You're going to make an issue of it. And so it, that's the success. And, and I think all, they may be
4: thinking that way with the art goats. Yeah. You also won't forget it. Like, right. Kate, real quick, what's the main idea from that jingle? Eat it up! Oh, see, see, it's like see how it's stuck in her mind. Eat
1: it up! Yeah.
0: <laughs> I still haven't gotten over the fact that they're not gonna. The stadium's not gonna be ready for the home games. I haven't gotten over the fact that the last mayor called the meeting during a blizzard. Mm. And did you hear that lately? Recently, someone was arrested, I think, for trying to steal materials from the site.
4: They were having terrible burglary problems. I mean, repeated burglary problems at the construction site. Uh, All kinds of things were being stolen. And then I think they actually caught the person using DNA evidence. So,
1: CSI Hartford.
4: Exactly, CSI Hartford. All right, we'll leave a little extra time uh, for recommendations and endorsements. Uh, I've got a couple of people that I want to remember who left this earth. So uh, let's take a break. We'll come back.
3: Eat up the the The
2: Today's show was produced by Colin McEnroe, Betsy Kaplan, and me Kyone Wolf, with help from Tucker Ives, who appeared in the intro. Our interns are Alexander Ingber and Benjamin Estee. Greg Hill tweets for us at WNPR Colin and the part of Bill Curry was played by Channing Tatum. For show pages, articles, and audio of the new Here and Now jingle, go to our website, wnpr.org slash Colin. On Monday's show, our ad gurus break down Super Bowl commercials. And now, back to Colin.
4: Speaking of the uh, Super Bowl commercials, one thing that we didn't get to, I didn't even realize it until it was too late to suggest it as a topic, but apparently Super Bowl 50, which is this Super Bowl, is not a Roman numeral this time. There's some question about uh, maybe they're going to go back, but they just didn't want an L. They just wanted... I don't know. Weird. Oh, yeah, it's pretty strange. It's the not. It's, it's the L word? It's five The L word. The L word, yeah. I who knows? It's, it's the same kind of thinking that produced that jingle. That's all I'd have to say. All right, we're going to do some recommendations here. Uh, and so, James Hanley, you get to go first.
3: Um, save the Yukon Co op. Um, this is something that the, the university is attempting to bring in one of the commercial bookstores, and uh, it's caused an uproar at the university. And uh, people should go to a change.org. There's a petition to save the Yukon Co-op and the bookstore. You can write emails to president at yukon.edu. And there's a rally on Monday at 10 o'clock uh, to save the bookstore. But if you do a search for bookstore, Yukon, EDU, you'll find the sites. It's really important that the I think the co-op at the university is one of the important institutions that is owned by the people who use it, the students, the faculty, the community at the university. And amidst all of the corporatization that is taking place at the university, I think the saving of that co-op is really important. So don't delay. Please send, a, uh, please send an email, attend the rally. And of course, uh, we will be showing The Hateful Eight at Cine Studio in the snow tonight. Um, tomorrow. We did a whole segment
4: about uh, the UConn Co-op last, uh, last Monday, this past Monday. Um, and by the way, I've been told – I like I wasn't going to go see The Hateful Eight because I really don't like Tarantino. But I've been told that you know if you don't like Tarantino, that doesn't necessarily disqualify you from liking The Hateful Eight, that it's a little bit more of a chamber piece. Than a little yes, less, yeah. it's
3: actually very internal. A lot of people think because of the widescreen and the outdoor uh, images they've used in the publicity. But in fact, it is actually a very internal uh, uh, group of actors really, very close.
4: Hate, hate uh, or don't like Tarantino, love Jennifer, Jason Lee. That might cancel the whole thing out. I'll go see you, hateful eight. Uh, Kate Russian, what have you got for us? All
0: right. Well, tonight I am going to the Wadsworth Athenaeum at 600 Main Street in Hartford, and I'm going to hear blues, roots, and soul music from Shamika Copeland. Oh, good, yeah. oh, I love her. And that's going to be at she's 8 so o'clock. Good. <laughs> And then after the concert, I'm going to go online and I am going to go to watch the NAACP Image Awards where I'll be able to see Will Smith and Idris Elba. And it's really a great show because the NAACP Image Awards Feature music as well as film and television, and they feature writers. And I have to give a shout out to Ross Gay, Terrence Hayes, and Mahogany L. Brown, who are in the poetry category. Then on uh, Sunday, uh, down at Mystic Museum of the Arts, Mystic Museum of Art at 9 Water Street in Mystic, Connecticut, we'll have the annual Langston Hughes Community poetry reading at 2 p.m. and it will be finished in time to see the Super Bowl and the keynote speaker is Jose Gonzalez of the US Coast Guard Academy and finally so that no one thinks I'm a moralistic condescending hypocrite I want to endorse the lovely cocktails at Little River Restoratives in the Frog section Frog Hollow section of Hartford, that's at 405 Capital
4: Ave, across from the Connecticut Department of Public Health. Wow. I didn't know about that place. All right. That sounds good. That all sounds great. So follow Kate rushing around all weekend. Uh, and uh, I think they're actually reading some of Peyton Manning's poems at the Mystic event so it'll get you warmed up for the Super Bowl um, alright so Rebecca Castellani what have you got?
1: So I've had kind of a broad endorsement of the Farmington Valley Art Center. It's a really great little art center there's a lot of great volunteer opportunities um, the specific thing I'm endorsing is on Thursday, February 25th they have one of these art parties they have so it's $35 to give you all the materials, wine, refreshments and help you create something. It's for all levels of art I am personally terrible at producing any sort of physical art form and they're really helpful and lovely so I would encourage according everyone, to the
4: chart how many glasses of wine can you have while um, you're okay up?
1: women you can only have uh, under four drinks within two or three hours or the Farmington Valley Arts Center will cut you off uh, for risk in case you get pregnant afterwards because they get rowdy Uh, So there's that. And then the other one I stumbled across this week was a documentary on Netflix called What Happened to Miss Simone. It came out in 2015, directed by Liz Garbus, and it was incredible. It had both my boyfriend and I in tears at one point, so I uh, highly recommend that. And that was nominated for an NAACP
4: Image Award. Good segue, yeah. Um, All right. So uh, I'm just going to say goodbye to two people. Uh, One of them is Bob Elliott. He was one half of Bob and Ray. Ray died many years ago, around 1990, I think. Um, This was uh it was actually I'll, so I'll sort of endorse another thing too which is I was watching the Mike Nichols Um, documentary on PBS um, which was actually directed by Elaine May and it it actually has some problems but Nichols is so brilliant and the way that he's talking about comedy and one of the things he says is that when he and Elaine May were thinking about comedy, what he came up with is why do you say anything? He said because A, because it's funny and B, because it's you, meaning everyone. And this I think was some of the genius of Bob and Ray that that they're the the world that they created of these sort of bumbling, inept people who, who are people who get ridiculously indignant about things that are actually w- – where they're in the wrong or – I mean they were, all, they were always kind of twanging at – I mean talking about sort of the cringe-inducing humor, they were a little bit different. They they were kind of twanging at real, real kind of basic uh, social conventions in a way that was really hilarious and, and hard to replicate. I mean I think they did create the kind of soft – uh, lob as opposed to a line-drive comedy that, that Garrison Keillor, when he's really at his best, probably continued that tradition pretty well. Bob Elliott actually was sort of a cast member on Prairie Home Companion for a while. So I would really recommend seeking out some of their comedy. If you've never heard anything, uh, you should listen to uh, the Cranberry interview. This is uh, an interview with a cranberry farmer who seems to be unaware of what cranberries are used for. Um, or the Komodo Dragon interview. This is an interview with a Komodo Dragon expert. In this case, it's the interviewer who does doesn't ever listen to any of the answers uh, to any of the questions. But really, almost anything you find from Bob and Ray, I mean, even the most basic premise of one of their ideas, uh, one, of, one of their bits, is just fabulous. Um, one of my favorites was this man who he's being interviewed about the fact that he, he keeps wild boars in his apartment uh, in New York City and he takes them out into, what's that park, he says? Uh, so the interviewer <laughs> says, Central Park. He goes, that's the one. <laughs> and he takes them out to look for truffles and then the interviewer goes, you know, it might be kind of cruel to be keeping wild boars in a New York City apartment, and the guy goes, I didn't come here to be insulted. (laughs) (laughs) So anyway, it's it's sort of the opposite of the smash-mouth comedy that we've gotten used to, but it's really worth maybe a trip back. Bob Elliott, um, who had ties to Old Lyme, I don't know if he ever lived there, but members of the three-generation – Chris Elliott, Abby Elliott, um, uh, comedy family did uh, occasionally dwell in Old Lyme or have or maybe still do. So and then lastly, um, uh, somebody else uh, also passed, unfortunately, and that is Maurice White. Maurice White was the musical genius. Uh, behind Earth, Wind, and Fire. Philip Bailey maybe is the name that you know more, but Maurice White was really the guy. He, and he came from a jazz background. He actually was the drummer for a while for the Ramsey Lewis trio. Uh, and uh, just uh, everything that you love about Earth, Wind, and Fire, most of it is traceable back to Maurice White and his notion, really, that jazz players could create this shimmering, incandescent, and very hopeful uh, form of, uh, of funk in soul. So we usually end with our friend Grayson Hugh, who does uh, uh, he's not bad at soul himself, but we're gonna. I'm, what I'm really gonna recommend is Maurice White, which is a solo album he did. This is a song from it called Jamboree.
2: that is if you're pregnant and you're drinking can you just lower your voice a little bit oh uh sure um is this better that's a lot better thanks